no matter how successful people are, they don't think they fit in. I mean, you could be a Nobel laureate and know that it was just one lucky day in a laboratory that you paid attention, or you're an Olympian and you might've won the gold in something one year. You might not make it to the next Olympics. You might be cut from the team, right? If you're an executive, maybe you did fantastic this quarter, but who knows what'll happen next quarter, your job could be at risk. And so the risk in general is thinking that just because somebody's achieved a certain status that they feel like they could rest. And nobody feels like they fit in. Everybody wants to belong. For human beings, belonging is critical. And nobody feels like they belong. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if it were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and you are listening to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Here's today's question How influential is your network? Now, you know, I love a multi-layered question, and this one comes in two parts. Firstly, how much does your current network, the, the current galaxy of people you orbit around or who orbit around you, reflect the, the habits, the influence, the results, and the values that you want to create in your life? Here's the second part, and this is where it gets interesting. How much of an impact does your current network have on you, those around you, and even those people in your life that may never have met? The answer, way more than you think. You know, if there's one thing that most researchers and those with high impact networks agree upon, it is this. Your level of influence is in direct correlation to who you are connected to. And that's fine as a baseline. But if you dig under the surface, I found it kind of raises more questions than it answers. You know, how big does that network need to be? Who needs to be in it? And in a day and age where we all collect more connections on social media and various other platforms than we could ever know what to do with, what does the word connection even mean anymore? And when I started digging in a little bit further to these questions, a lot of the answers all pointed me in one direction. And that direction is my guest on today's episode. John Levy is a social researcher, best-selling author, TED Talker, and probably best known, founder of The Influencers Dinner. Now, The Influencers Dinner is an exclusive dining experience. If you haven't heard of it, jump online, check it out. It was something that John created back in 2009 when, as I'll use his words, a broke 28-year-old, he started inviting people he admired and respected to his home to simply share a meal and connect. Over time, the prestige of the guests increased to include Nobel laureates, Olympians, Emmy award winners, musicians, politicians, and even members of the royal family. The only rule? No one knows each other's identity until they all sit down to eat. John also shares his unique approach to making connections in his latest best-selling book, You're Invited, 
The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence. This book breaks down his influence equation on how to build belonging and trust to create a high impact community. Um, it was described recently by the Wall Street Journal as a perfect message for our post-COVID awakening. And honestly, I could not agree more. In this conversation, we jump straight into why influence and behavior is contagious within networks, regardless, and this part blew my mind, of whether any of those individuals even ever meet. How the most powerful influencers curate a community around themselves as an ecosystem that they can both feed and be inspired by. The IKEA effect, why most of us feel that we can buy or impress our way to a high impact network. You know, take people out to an expensive lunch, buy huge lavish gifts, when in fact, the strongest and the longest bonds are built through shared effort, i.e. building or cooking something together. The sacred in our rituals, I loved this. How to choose the rituals and the habits in our lives, consciously create them within our teams and our families so that they become the cornerstones that we are all able to orbit around. A blueprint for creating a powerful invitation and this one worth the price of admission alone. Exactly what, after years of inviting the most powerful people on the planet to his events, John has learned makes a powerful invitation. And finally, why everyone feels like they don't fit in. I know this sounds trite, but believe me, it's huge. Why it has been John's experience, as to be honest, it has mine, that every single person you admire or respect or would want to spend more time with at some level, is worried that they might not belong. That their last success was a one-off, that they might not win the next game or write the next best-selling book, and why that makes creating safe places of belonging for all of us even more vital. The best thing, or the biggest thing I got out of this conversation was, once again, the importance of playing the long game. You know, it's a theme that's come up a lot on this podcast recently. I feel like it's never the answer we want to hear, right? Myself included, that in order to have the relationships that we want or the influence or impact that we want, we need to be constantly working on and building relationships over a five, 10, 20 year horizon. And that's the opposite of a quick win. That's the opposite of, you know, what we would call the overnight success. However, in a very real way, playing the long game is so much better. It takes all the pressure off the next conversation, the next invitation, the next review, the next performance. You know, if we're in it for the long haul, today's result just doesn't matter so much. What matters is that as a trajectory, we're one step closer to where we want to be. And what comes to matter even more than that in the long run, that we're one step closer to the people that we want to be with when we get there. Now, for those of you who are ready to take on your journey in influence or the next step in your journey in influence, you know what I'm about to say. Hop onto my website or the show notes or the socials. It's in a variety of different places and find the link to download the latest version of my ebook, The Influencer Code. I put it together to cover the seven areas and seven core questions that over 20 years doing this work, working with influencers and thought leaders at the top of their game, I have found hands down to be the most useful when it comes to fast tracking your level of influence. Just pop in your email address and it will be in your inbox in the time it takes to pour yourself a cup of coffee. On that note, 
stride out, cycle on, drive safe, and sink into the unique wisdom of the master inviter himself, John Levy. Welcome to the podcast, John Levy. How are you? Oh, I'm absolutely fantastic. I just got back from the Galapagos. Whoa, that's <laughs> okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna sideline the question I was gonna start with. Let's start there. <laughs> Why the Galapagos? Uh, so <laughs> uh, there's a few reasons. One of them is that because I got married a few years ago in the pandemic, I never really went on a honeymoon. Uh, but also, as you know. I run this kind of crazy community, over 2,500 people participate, and uh, we thought it would be fun to see if we could get, gather people, and we all went on a cruise to the Galapagos and got to see sea lions and finches, and this is going to sound funny, but the, the famous bird there is called a booby. They're blue-footed and red-footed and NASA boobies, uh, so we saw a lot of boobies, and then, which involves a lot of giggling for most people. And then uh, we also. I'm, I'm doing it quietly. Yeah, good. It's uh, it we pretend as adults that we're mature, but really, <laughs> not a chance. Uh, and we got to see, you know, iguanas and like all these wildly beautiful animals, and uh, it was a nice way to kind of end the summer. How many people came? And we'll get into the community that you run soon. But how many people came? So this was a super last minute trip. It was only about uh, I think there were seven of us. Uh, from the community who came, uh, but I think the next one's probably going to end up being something like 50 to 100, uh, which is going to be kind of wild uh, to travel with that many people. Wow. And it speaks to, you know, creating created a, creating a community of like-minded hmm. where you get to create the experiences that you want and they, by natural extension, are the experiences of can, the people in your community. That can I actually they want. throw something out there? Uh, yeah, I, it's actually a community of non-like-minded. Ooh, okay. Talk to me about that. So uh, maybe it's a good time to explain to the, the people listening some background. Uh, yeah, do. So as you know, I'm a human behavioral scientist. My area that I really look at is connection, trust, and belonging. Um, I used to be known kind of as the influence guy because 12 years ago, I was curious what allows or causes influential people to connect with each other. And I came across this crazy study, which kind of inspired me to, to learn about this. And it was by these two guys, Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler, brilliant researchers. And they were curious. The big topic back then was the obesity epidemic. And they wanted to know, does obesity spread from person to person like a cold? Is it that kind of epidemic? Or is it a percentage of the population? And what they found really kind of turned heads. They discovered that if you have a friend who's obese, your chances of obesity increase by 45%. Your friends who do not know them have a 20% increased chance. And their friends have a 5% increased chance. And this kind of effect is true for happiness, marriage and divorce rates, smoking habits, voting habits. Basically, everything spreads from person to person. So I got super curious. How do I get the people that I admire the most to not only impact me, but each other? And so what I did was absolutely ridiculous. I spent much of my adult life convincing people to come to my home, 
cook me dinner, wash my dishes, clean my floors. And then for some wild reason, they uh, often thank me for it and ask if their friends can do it. Oh, there's so much in there. Okay. Um, let's just, let's just talk about what the influences dinner is because you've got your book that I want to get into. Um, but let, let's start with that foundational piece. So what is the influences dinner and how did it begin? So, uh, the technical description is we invite 12 people, uh, to come often to my home, sometimes to, uh, a home of somebody who's attended previously one of these dinners, and they're not allowed to discuss their career or even give their last name. They end up cooking a meal together. So we pair them off, they cook, and once the meal is done, we sit down to eat. And as we sit, we play a game to discover what people do professionally. And here's the twist. They discover they're sitting with Nobel laureates, Olympic medalists, editors of the top magazines and newspapers, uh, the occasional prime minister or member of royalty. Uh, I've hosted over 2,500 people, ranging from uh, Deepak Chopra and uh, Malcolm Gladwell all the way through to uh, <laughs> the voice of the dog from Who Let the Dogs Out, who won an Emmy uh, Grammy for it. You remember that song? I do. Everybody you've just mentioned, I think I'd pick that one. Yeah, yeah. It's super guy, super, super nice guy. Uh, and uh, he's actually a, a an art AR like artist representation i think he was discovering new talent and was recording the baja men and he said no no that's not how you bark this is how you bark and then they put him on the album and he ended up winning a grammy for it he won a grammy yeah how amazing is that i yeah win a grammy for barking i mean what does that i don't know what that says about musical creative expression but i don't know if it's good things or bad things but it's pretty amazing um, so let's go to the why, because for anybody that's listening out there, you know, there's a whole bunch of pieces that we're talking about right now that, that kind of come together into what I have found to be a very impactful, um, perspective on connection and belonging and trust. So tell me why, why did it begin? So when I started it, I was probably about 29. I was, I started doing the research to understand what would connect people. And it was a byproduct of the simple fact that I was underemployed. I was heavily in debt from university. And I didn't really, you know, I was overweight. Like I wanted to kind of have a, a turnaround for my life. And I eventually had to accept that just self-control alone won't get me there, right? I keep kept hitting the snooze alarm at 6 a.m. trying to convince myself to wake up. But I realized that if human behavior is contagious, maybe what I just need is people who are athletes in my social circle. And then exercise will become part of my routine rather than something I have to force myself to do. And so the why of it is that the fundamental element that defines the quality of our lives are the people we surround ourselves with. And as human beings, we really forgotten that and is it is it behavior i'm just trying to think this through is it behavior that is contagious is it identity that is contagious is it rituals what is the contagion so i'll give you a few examples the first is we have to accept that part of it isn't just a pure contagion so much as um something called homophily like birds of a feather flock together so if 
I go and work out at a gym, I'm more likely to be friends with the people at the gym. And that reinforces a behavior, right? But part of it is really that certain things are contagious. So before we, were, we started, we were talking about your family trip. And you said you have children. And so my hunch is that when you had your first child, your friend said, oh, you should use these soaps, use this stroller. And suddenly you begin to see how things become contagious, right? They spread. But also, let's say the two of us hang out and I can't exercise. So I say, you know what? Instead of going uh, on a walk, maybe let's go see a movie. So now we're eating a tub of popcorn rather than getting some fitness in. Or maybe what happens is that hanging out with people who are really fit or those who aren't cause us to reevaluate where we stand as a healthy body. So I think that the important thing to understand isn't that like, let's, let's just start off with something really simple, which is that we shouldn't be shaming somebody if their body's bigger. There, it's actually not great research to suggest that if you have some extra weight, it's actually bad for you. The, the key here is an understanding that everything essentially spreads from person to person, whether it's political views or it's uh, the desire to get divorced or it's happiness. And, and so by figuring out how to curate the people around us, the way that a great museum director will curate the collection that they have, that has an incredible impact on our lives, the lives of the people that we interact with and their connections as well. And it raises the level of responsibility as well. Mm. You know, if we are contagious with something, be it, you know, cold, <laughs> flu, there's been plenty of talk about being contagious over the last couple of years. Um, we take responsibility for, for what we spread and what we don't spread. Mm. And we take responsibility for where we go and who we hang around with because we don't want that thing or we do want that thing to spread to the people that we love. Um, and so it just adds a whole other level of self-responsibility there when it comes to what you want to spread. I think you make a really interesting point. One of the things though I will emphasize is that don't confuse, oh, that person's depressed, I shouldn't interact with them because, oh, that might, I might get contagious off of it. Mm. We have to realize that what allowed us to survive as a species is that we work better together than almost any other species out there. Um, we're not the fastest and we're not the strongest. And it turns out that you actually experience pain less if you're holding the hand of somebody that cares for you. And so there are certain things that are decreased like pain, anxiety, depression. There's also fantastic research that you're the greatest predictor of human longevity. Isn't like that amazing kale cleanse you did. Barry's boot camp. Barry's boot camp, which I just came from. And you know, exercise is important, but what's far more important on the, the list, number two is strong social ties, having close friends and family. And number one is something called social integration, which is this idea that of the number of people you come in contact with, are you part of a community? Because the, it seems at least, and there's really fantastic research to support this, that a lot of the things that 
occur as a byproduct of, let's say, even an unhealthy diet are mitigated when you have strong social ties and a sense of belonging. And I think that that's one of the things that we keep missing. Do you feel like, and I want to get into what connection is in a moment, because I think that that's a, a huge question. Do you feel like we are less connected now? Which, in you know, you mm. could say we've just come out of isolation, you know. Or do you feel like we are more connected now because we have so many more tools and spaces available to connect virtually across borders? So I, I'm going to answer this in two ways because, you know, nothing's always, and nothing's ever as simple as we want it to be. No. So I'll give you some stats on America. American belonging, let's call it, uh, peaked around 1950, post-World War II sentiment. America is on top of everything, right? We're manufacturing something like two-thirds of all the world's goods. And at that point, we kind of peaked and two things happened. The decline of post-war sentiment and the television enters the home. And what we see consistently is that the number of social ties decrease and engagement in civics or social groups decreases dramatically. And so by about 1985, I think it was, yeah, 1985, the average American had just about three friends besides family. By 2004, we were down to two. That's 19 years, less than a generation. We lost half of, uh, sorry, a third of our social ties. And now during the pandemic, it's even, or, you know, during this part of the pandemic, it's even less. So assuming that I have a whole bunch of friends, right, 10, 20, 30, whatever it is, that means that there's a whole lot of people out there that have zero or one. And so I would say that we are lonelier than ever. And if you look across the board, there's these kind of trends of loneliness or in Japan, I think, or Korea, you can hire a person to be your friend. And so they come and hang out with you for a few hours and talk and then it's over. But the fact that that would exist suggests that there's something going on. And so uh, that's one side of it. There is, I think, a small group of people who feel isolated. So if you are a trans person in a wildly religious Christian community that's very small, and you have no sense of belonging at all, then I think the internet allows for an opportunity to connect with people and have a sense of identity and belonging. But I don't think it replaces in-person human connection. So let's talk about that word. Let's, let's talk about that word connection. I think, you know, what connection used to mean and what it means now, you know, two, two totally different things. What connection used to mean um, was, you know, one-on-one, interpersonal, what it means now is if you think about the language you use on LinkedIn, you think about the language you use on, on any social media channel, you know, I have X amount of connections. Would you like to connect with me? And I feel like we've lost a, a clear definition of the word. And I'm really curious out of all of your experiences and research, how would you define the word? What definition do you use? So in its simplest form, it's that there's a mutual awareness of one another, right? But just like anything, I think there's depths. There's a kind of interesting study on, I think it's called multiplexic relationships. And it 
it's a it's terrible language. This is one of the problems with science in general that makes it really inaccessible is that it uses big words that nobody wants to remember and it isolates or, or separates people from actually learning about it. But a plex is a single common thread, right? So you were just in England. I was just in England. We have a commonality there. You uh, maybe have read a book. I've read a book. There's a commonality there. But the more plexes we have, the more likely we are to feel a sense of belonging or connection to each other, right? The more likely I am also to trust you. And that's because for human beings, we have something called the mere exposure effect. And this is kind of funny, and I'll share a, a story with you that I think you'll get a kick out of. In 1911, on a Monday in August, a man walked into the Louvre, the famed French museum, walks into the Renaissance section, sees a small painting on the side that nobody really cares about. In fact, it hangs around much larger paintings and simply selects it because it is the smallest one in the room, rips it off of the wall, covers it in his workman's smock, and walks out. About 36 hours later, there's a, anybody really notices that there's an issue, and the French detectives arrive, and newspapers around the world print images of the stolen art, announcing it's, that it was, that's missing, and as a result, thousands of people stood in line just to see the empty spot. Now, it took three years till the painting was returned. And then once again, news around the world, the world rejoiced. And that's the only reason anybody probably knows which painting. You're at Mona Lisa? Yeah, the Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa by art historians isn't considered the greatest painting of all time. But if you ask the average person and you say, name the greatest painting, they would most likely say the Mona Lisa. Don't get me wrong, da Vinci was a master. But there are other da Vinci works that historians would actually argue are much, much more impressive. But we have something called the mere exposure effect, which is that the more often we see something, the more safe we feel with it and the more we tend to like it. And so the more things we have in common, the more familiar you feel, and the more likely I am to connect with you and trust you and even like you. In fact, uh, I did a research project. It was the largest study in history on dating. And uh, we, one of the questions we asked was, like, what actually causes people to date? And look at 431 million matches, or maybe it was 421 million matches. And we found that if you have the same initials, you're 11.3% more likely to date. Because anything that's as familiar to you as your own name or own initials is going to be more appealing. And so, you know, we tie that back to connection for a second, a sense, a sense of connection with people and go back to the first thing that you said, which is they don't have to be of like mind. That would seem to suggest that, you know, you meet someone of like mind and you are more likely. You are connect. more likely, far more likely. Yeah. But your network shouldn't be just of those with like mind. So I think that you want to separate kind of a couple of things. Clearly, you don't want to spend time with people who are like abusive, right? So there's certain things that are, if somebody's a serial killer, probably not somebody I want to spend a lot of time with. Uh, so I think the key is to understand 
where the likeness occurs and what you respect and appreciate about that person. So I have people who are wildly separated from me on the political spectrum, religious spectrum, you know, socioeconomic spectrum. I've hosted everyone from billionaires to people that can barely pay their bills. But the key is that most people tend to connect with those that are familiar to them. There's a secondary option. You can either find your common ground or you can create it. So there's this impression that if I want you to like me and trust me, what I should actually do is say, you know what? I'm going to take you out for an expensive dinner. Then I'll impress you. Then you'll like me. And in the business world, this is very common. Have you ever seen this? Oh, yeah. Come out for lunch. Yeah. Let me impress you with the, with the location of lunch. The problem with that is that those meals tend to be really awkward because you don't necessarily have something to connect about or common ground. And it turns out that you really can't buy relationships like that. There is an exception, which is if I know you're a super fan of something, like maybe you're, is there a show your kids absolutely love? Yes, at the moment, a little known show called Teen Titans. Oh, okay. So here's a perfect example. I'm, okay. uh, is it the cartoon or the TV show? The, uh, the cartoon TV show. Okay. Yeah. So let's say it's, uh, I find this out and I arrange for the voice of Robin or Beast Boy or Cyborg to record. Can I just, I can't believe you even know what this is. Oh, yes, by the way. I'm a, I'm a, I'm really geeky. I know all the superheroes. <laughs> so I, I arrange for the voice of Robin or Beast Boy to record a message for your kids. And then I get that sent to you. Now, that may have cost me some money. And so it, you could argue that I'm kind of trying to buy the relationship, but that's not what made it special. It wasn't the money. It was the thoughtfulness. And the thing is that that doesn't scale. Like I can't do that across an entire company or to 10,000 people. What I can do though, is apply an idea called the Ikea effect. And the Ikea effect states that we care more about our Ikea furniture because we have to assemble it. So anything we put effort into, we care about more. And the classic example of this that I always like to give is, I know you have kids and we don't love our kids despite the fact that they're a pain in the butt but because of it, because we have to stay up late with them and care for them and help them with their homework. Or you just told me about the most insane 36 hour period where you had to keep them entertained on flights. And it's because of that effort that we care about them. So to, let's, let's talk about, you know, you said it's hard to scale that kind of one-on-one -on -one. and, you know, I've, I've done that before where, you know, there's been somebody in particular who, you know, I trust and admire, respects and admire. And, you know, for example, Gary, Gary V. And he, he did me a great kindness. We met at an event once. He did me a great kindness and he called in to talk to my team. We had a team day and he called in and spent, you know, 15 minutes on the phone with my team just talking about, you know, what next and trends. And I found out that he was really into WWF wrestling. And so I found out, you know, which figure he was missing and, and like got someone I hunted down, had it sent to his office as a, as a thank you for doing that. 
And, you know, as you said, that's great, but that, you know, that doesn't scale. When we're talking about building networks or, or connections at scale, which brings me to the question of, is there an ideal size of network? You know, is this something where we go, right, we have our hit list 20, 20 people who we respect and admire, who we want to be in our world, who we want to have relationships with. That has one, you know, way of behavior. And then we have another couple of hundred and then we have maybe the thousands that follow us or don't, you know, part of our community network. How do you scale this kind of, this kind of connection and how big can it go? So I think the, the question, I'm going to take a step back on it, right? Because I don't think there is an ideal size. Uh, and I think that to even say that, oh, there should be is unfair to people. And here's why. I run really extroverted. I can handle a lot of stimulus for a lot of time with a lot of people. Eventually I need a break and, you know, it's, I end up hiding under a blanket for you know a day or something, but I can really handle it. There are a lot of people who can't, that their ideal scenario is talking to two or three people at a time. If that's, where people kind of peak or their sweet spot, then the objective shouldn't be to have 10 meetings a day with three people in it and max out the number of contacts. It's about creating the depth of relationship that matters with the people that are most important and continuously expanding to meet new people. And the reason the new people is important is that what your objectives are and what your concerns are and what your interests are today have nothing to do with the person you will be in five years. And if you maintain purely the same network, I'm not talking about your best friends or something like that, but if you maintain purely the same relationships during that time, it's gonna be really hard to grow. You're going to need to spend more time with some people than others, or maybe you spent a year hanging out with one person a ton and then they moved away, that's fine. But the key is to connect with people at the scale you feel comfortable, maybe also push yourself a little. The reason that's important is that there's a difference between shyness and introversion. Shyness is the fear of being judged, right? I'm concerned what people will think about me. Introversion is that there's probably a limit to the amount of stimulus that you could handle. And so you wanna find those environments, those activities that really work for you to connect with people. Uh, based on your level. Uh, and then, you know, do what you like, keep expanding and growing and be clear on what your objectives are so that you can introduce the right people into your environment and into your circle. I loved that distinction there between shyness and introversion. I'd never, I'd never thought about that before. Mm. Um, you know, my daughter often says, you know, I'm feeling a bit shy and sh she is quite an introvert. So I take it to be the same thing, but you're right. They are two very different, mm. two very different things. I, th I think one of the other important factors that we need to take into account is, and this is what allowed the influencers community to thrive to 2,500 plus dinner alum, 266 dinners, right? It's quite large, is that I don't focus on any one-on-one -on -one relationships to an extreme degree. I have people that I'm very close with, but the reason the community exists is to have them connect with as many people as possible. And the reason is, so let's say, uh, let's say Julie, the two of us become friends. 
it's going to be near impossible for me to maintain that at a really significant degree, especially because there's, I don't know, 14 hour time zone difference between us. Like it's just, it's, it would be so hard. Instead, what I'm going to do is try to connect you to 20 of my friends. And then you're in my orbit because that way when the next time I see you, you may have not heard updates from me, but you're talking to Steve and you'll say, oh, by the way, how's John? And he'll say, oh, he was just in the Galapagos. He's planning another trip. And suddenly what happens is you have a perspective into my life and that um, virality of behavior still exists without me having to be in touch with you constantly. And then as a byproduct, the next time I see you, we can pick up like old camp friends just where we left off. And that word orbit, it's mm -hmm. interesting that you said that because that if when I was having a visual of what you were talking about there, it is really that, you know, you create almost like a galaxy Mm -hmm. of connections where, you know, they, they orbit around you, but they're also interconnected and they also have their own, yeah. their own dynamics as well. I want everybody to be pulled into everybody else's gravity, mm. right? Because if they're really great people, I want them all affecting each other. Which is kind of the, the foundational premise of a, of a mastermind group or, mm -hmm. um, you know, any kind of community that the sum of the whole is greater than the individual parts. Yep. Tell me, let's go back to the influencers dinner a second. So you said you were, you know, overweight, underemployed. Yeah. I'm guessing, you know, I'm guessing, well, obviously this is not the case because you just ran straight here from boot camp. Um, you didn't just send an email to a Nobel laureate or. Um, I did as well. Yeah. They're actually the easiest ones to get a hold of. <laughs> uh, good to know. That is good to know. How did you kick it off? So I want to start off with, I had no, like people might think, oh, John, of course he succeeded. He had all these relationships. I didn't have any of these relationships. My parents are immigrants, right? They're, like my dad had a decent level of success, but it's not, I didn't grow up in American culture. I had no idea how to be around people with wealth. I had no idea how to communicate with them. I, my father was one of 12 children born in pre-Israel, Palestine, uh, in 1940 in Tel Aviv, like it was not our world. Um, and so what I did was, you know, that phrase, it takes a long time to become an overnight success. Mm, play the long game. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am wildly committed to the relationships that I have and I never wanted anybody to think that they're just being used for some purpose, right? So I, when I started the dinner, I never charged anybody for anything. And initially there was no ask because what am I going to ask like a Nobel laureate for, right? What would I even ask an actor for or something other than to call your kids and leave a voicemail? The, I don't have a business prospect with most of these people. And that, not that that would stop you if you wanted to build a community within an industry, that's great as well. Uh, so when I started it, I invited people that I thought were impressive, but not people at the level that I get to en engage with now. And as after the first dinner it took me, I think like five or six months to do a second dinner. 
and collect names and find people. But dinner after dinner, the guest list became more and more impressive because I had experience about how to talk about it. I had experience on how to invite. I tested out different invitations. And you just improve over time. And so it went from every, it went from five months to four months to three. Eventually I was doing two a month. Nowadays I do six, I think, or, or five a month, depending on the month. And you are at every single? Every single, single dinner, but I do not send out the invites. Eventually I, I have a staff of three people, a head of communications, uh, two researchers. And then my, on the business side, we also have uh, uh creative director and a bunch of other people that are just involved. And are they still at your apartment? Uh, much of the ones in New York, we don't have central air in this apartment, so we don't do cooking here in the summer. We are very thankful to have dinner alum that have frankly much nicer homes than mine. Uh, listen, my place is great. It's just some of these homes in New York don't make any sense. <laughs> so uh, I say yes, Let, make a mess in their home. <laughs> And who was, who was at the first one? You said it was people that you found deeply. Oh, like literally this is 2010, I think about there, 2010. And, uh, and I had like, at the time, somebody with 10,000 followers on Twitter was a big deal, right? Somebody who was a highly respected celebrity hairstylist and went on tour with the biggest acts. But that's so different than like, and I, those people are wonderful. I'm still friends with them and they, I still invite those people back to our events. But nowadays, you know, it's kind of funny. We get uh, Pulitzer Prize winners and Emmy Award winners and, you know, like people that are far more successful than I am. <laughs> the, the big joke is that one day I hope to accomplish something worthy of an invitation to my own dinner. Uh, <laughs> and. And I think like with my last book, I, I may have accomplished that. I hit the New York Times bestseller list. It was Wall Street Journal's book of the month for August of last year. So it was a bestseller in Korea. So, you know, if you have Korean friends, please suggest the book. <laughs> pass, pass it forward. And what have, you, what have you noticed? What have you noticed about connection? I mean, you've watched. Oh, wow hundreds of dinners uh -huh. and you've watched people who on the surface of things may not have much in common other than they're both, you know, fascinating individuals. Mm -hmm. What have you noticed about the connections that succeed versus those that just never get past that tipping point of surface conversation? Oh, okay. So let's start off with kind of two or three things. The dinner itself is self-selecting. If you're not even a little curious or you're too important, quote unquote, you wouldn't even enter. So there is a self-selection of like like-mindedness in terms of at least you're somewhat open, right? Um, the second is that, and this is probably the most important thing I've learned from it, no matter how successful people are, they don't think they fit in. I mean, you could be a Nobel laureate and know that it was just one lucky day in a laboratory that you paid attention. Or you're an Olympian and you might've won the gold in something one year you might not make it to the next Olympics. You might be cut from the team, right? If you're an executive, maybe you did fantastic this quarter, but who knows what'll happen next quarter, your job could be at risk. And so the risk in general is thinking that just because somebody's achieved a certain status that they feel like they could rest. And nobody feels like they fit in. Everybody wants to belong. 
it is essentially the great predictor of human longevity, team success, right? There's this great project by uh, Google called Aristotle, where they found the great predictor of team success is something called psychological safety, that you're not afraid that you're going to be kicked out or punished if you say something that maybe doesn't agree with the group, right? For human beings, belonging is critical and nobody feels like they belong. Something so startling and beautiful mm-hmm. in that. You know, I, even for me, and I, I work with incredible people and I get to see behind the scenes with, you know, incredible minds, incredible thought leaders, incredible authors, speakers. And even for me, that's startling. Yeah. That, you know, everybody feels like they don't, everybody feels like they don't fit in. Everyone feels like it could end tomorrow. Everybody feels like it could have been a fluke that they'll never come up with, you know, anything that great ever again. And there's something so beautiful to that, mm-hmm. how much we need each other. It's, uh, it's really quite startling. And I, I think we're going through a bit of an existential crisis right now. There was a great paper actually co-written by one of the dinner alum named Casper. Um, and it's, it's about where do people find belonging if churches are being attended less and synagogues are being attended less and so on. And what they found is that they're finding it at SoulCycle, the bicycling training companies, or uh, CrossFit, because these things take on rituals and culture and community, and people find true belonging there. And I think that's fantastic. It's the new secular religion is things like fitness and yoga and all that kind of stuff and meditation. But that word ritual, and it's funny, we were, we were actually just having a family conversation. We had a family dinner, we had friends over, and we were having that exact conversation just this weekend about the power and importance of ritual. And I was saying, you know, I'd grew, I didn't grow up with any organized religion. My father's, you know, engineer, scientist. Um, and one of the things that I have always envied in a way from those communities is the, the, the beautiful ritual and consistency that happens and that I have very deliberately had to sit down and genuinely very deliberately sat down and thought, what do I want that to be within my own family? Because Mm -hmm. it's so important. It keeps us anchored. It becomes something we all orbit around. What do I want those to be and how do I build them? Because it is so important to a sense of belonging. Why, why is ritual a sense of ritual so important? Yeah. I, I think that that's a really great strategy. So, We've gotten uh, probably too obsessed with certain cultural rituals that aren't necessarily healthy. And instead of inventing our own, and I think that you're right, they probably do provide a pretty significant level of, um, of grounding mm-hmm. in, in that tradition. Another kind of wild thing is that same person, Casper, started a podcast called Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. And it was brilliant because it took a really simple idea. What if we take a piece of writing that has no intrinsic spiritual value to it and then read it as if it's sacred, as if there's intended hidden meaning in it? And then see what we discover. Because frankly, much, and I went to Hebrew day school, I've read the Torah, like much of it, you're really inventing the meaning in it. 
So you might as well do that for other books that might be more entertaining to you. But the idea that sacredness is imbued, like sacredness is given. It's not necessarily inherent, you know, it's, it's given. And just to give you an idea of, of, you know, what things you can make sacred. So we, one of the rituals that I put into place, my daughter's, you know, she, she needs consistency. She is, she is someone who, who needs to know what's going to happen and when at this phase of her life anyway. Um, and I, we started with, okay, well, we'll have pizza every Friday night, but then we were like, okay, now we, we have pizza. pizza every Friday night. Yeah. Now we have, <laughs> now we eat pizza every Friday night. Okay. That's not working. Um, and then we went to fajitas. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, we'll do fajitas. And then it became, okay, we don't want to get, she's only like at that stage, she was only about three. Like we don't want to get pizzas on the couch or no, sorry. We don't want to get fajitas everywhere. How about we just put a rug down uh-huh. and it became this one rug that has become the sacred rug like it is stained and full of holes but uh-huh. it is the sacred rug i love it's it got elsa and anna on it yeah not that you can tell anymore because it's been washed so many times so it became all about the rug and then we decided we didn't want to eat fajitas anymore it became tacos mm-hmm. but it's still called fajita fajita friday and she starts asking about fajita friday on monday and it becomes the thing that all things orbit around mm-hmm. how many sleeps into like she figures out what day it is in relation to how many sleeps it is from Fajita. So there's a few things I love about this. The first is um, when we look at community, right? This idea of truly feeling like belonging. The researchers who who are kind of the masters of this, these guys, McMillan and Chavez, discovered that community isn't a thing like, oh, because you have a membership card, you feel like you belong. It's a feeling. So you have a sense of community. And a community or a sense of community occurs when there are four characteristics in place. One is there's a sense of membership. There's a clear line of those on the inside and those on the outside, right? So that could be the Girl Scouts in their uniforms, doctors and their language, right? When doctors talk, I have no idea what they're saying. It could be that you actually have a membership card to something. The second is influence. When I say that, I mean that it's near impossible to build community on Instagram because influence flows one way. If I am a fan of, let's say, Taylor Swift, it doesn't matter what my comments are. She doesn't care. She's never going to know them. The other fans probably won't know each other because there are millions of people following her. So it's kind of meaningless. But if I'm having a conversation with you or we hop in a Zoom meeting and we, there's five of us, we can all have influence. We can all have a voice. Your daughter clearly has a voice in the family. The third is that there's a clear, like, we're going the same place. I wouldn't join a knitting club because where they're going is not where I'm going. I might join like a fitness group because we're training for, I have no interest in this currently in my life, a triathlon. But joining that community would make sense if I cared about triathlons. And then the final one is shared values in history. And this is where these these rituals really kick in. Because if you are Jewish and you show up to another Jewish family's home on a Friday night, they might use different music, but the traditions are very similar. You have a shared history, a shared culture, shared values. 
And as a byproduct, you can have a sense of belonging anywhere in the world with a group of people when they have that. And so I love this idea that you create your own rituals. And, and one of the things that we often talk about in community building is that it's not on you to manage every aspect of it. When you're organizing a community, you're actually creating a space in which community can emerge. The people always wanted to participate. They'll put in the effort, that IKEA effect. But you just have to give them that space. You put out that blanket, right? The community then can form. You've provided the space. So you are holding space for the community, Precisely. literally. Create, creating and holding a, a, a space. Um, and that, you know, that's shared language piece as well. You know, some of the most impactful meetings I've ever been in are not in, you know, large organizations where you, you know, you go into these beautiful meeting rooms and mm. there's somebody who literally someone whose job it is to offer you a variety of tea and, you know, they're not the most impactful meetings I've been yeah. in. You, you know, you've got this incredible view out the window. No, the most impactful meetings I have ever been in are the ones that start with ritual. Mm-hmm. It's the ones that begin with um, one that we used to do in my organization was we used to go around the table and just say, what I want to say is, you've got one minute, it's not a big diatribe. What Mm -hmm. I want to say is, you know, what I want to say is my baby's been up all night and it was a big night, but I'm here, I have coffee in my hand and I am ready to go. What I want to say is, you know, I feel like we're on the verge of something big here and I'm super excited to be here. And you just go around and something magical happens. You go around that table and suddenly in the space of, you know, five to eight minutes, everybody is there. Everybody is connected. Everybody is on the same page in terms of why we're here. And what happens after that is is magic. But you have to create the space and the mm-hmm. ritual for that yeah. to occur. I think that's great. Uh, I really love that. The I think one of the problems is that... Uh, People think that luxurious things bond us. But it, on average, when luxury really comes into play, uh, it tends to isolate. So for example, if we go on a vacation and our families come together and we have to put up tents together and we have to cook together, we'll bond that shared effort, that IKEA effect kicks in. But if we go to a luxury spa and I say, oh, guys, I'll catch you later. I have my five o'clock private massage. And you say, oh, we're going to actually dine in our, we're going to get food delivered to our room. Suddenly, yeah, we're both on vacation, but the bonding has disappeared. We survived because of our investment of effort into one another. That's what makes us happy when it, things come down to it. It's that relationships are happiness, relationships are health, relationships are success. And you'll notice that the poorest communities in the world are the ones that actually are the most interconnected because they need to depend on one another. When you can't afford a babysitter, then you're definitely going to know your neighbor because you're going to figure things out and take turns doing stuff. And so, uh, I think that you're you're really pointing to something great. One is that luxury isn't necessary. I frankly have some of the most important and influential people in our culture coming for terrible food, and it doesn't matter. And although some of the apartments are gorgeous, in the early days, that didn't matter either. 
What matters is that we are there investing effort into something that's novel and fun and as a byproduct, a sense of belonging forms. Before I, I, I let you go, I really want to know what you know or try and understand what you know about making invitations. Oh. Because, <laughs> I, again, you know, I, I speak to people all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they want to, they want someone in their network or they want to have coffee with someone, they want to pick someone's brain, they want to interview someone, whatever it happens to be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the question they will ask is, I just don't know how to reach out. I just don't know how to make an invitation. And I think that the art of the invitation is such a beautiful art form, right? It can be such an incredibly vulnerable and um, trust building art form as opposed to a blanket. Here's my template. Yeah. Let me shoot it out. What have you learned about making invitations? So I think there's two aspects. Let's start off with this. That people get overly concerned with any one person accepting their invitation. And that's because we tend to have just one example of a person like that in our heads. So I say, oh, who should we invite that's successful? Your immediate thought is Elon Musk. Like, listen, there's 10, 20, 100 people like Elon Musk that you just don't know exist because they aren't getting that much attention in the news. And those people are far more likely to become friends with you. So the key is, let's start off with, for every one person you know know of, let's find 20 more that are lookalikes or 100 more that are lookalikes. Because then you're not going to be concerned if one person says no then you can actually start inviting at scale and seeing what works. Now, if the one really matters, I would begin by doing something called stacking, which is, it's what I call it, but uh, really quick, uh, if I stopped and asked you for the time, you would give it to me, right? So that's one of these funny things though, because researchers did this experiment where if I stop, if they, they stop people on the street and ask for complex directions, they generally didn't get it. But if they asked people for the time, they would generally get the time. And then when they asked for the directions, they would get them. Because once you are viewed as somebody worthy of some effort, you're worthy of more effort. And so the key often, if somebody is really important, is start off with a really small, really quick, really simple request. Don't go into an entire diatribe. I might start off with, well, Julie, I've listened to like 50 episodes of your show. I absolutely love it. Is there like two or three about how to be, I don't know, a, a great female CEO that I should listen to? Like, and then I get you to put in a little bit of effort. And then I go back and I go say, oh my God, I love them. I actually bought their books. I listened to them on Audible. Oh my God, is there anybody else you know what, would you mind just five minutes with me? I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. Once you've said yes to something, you're more likely to say yes to the next thing. So get small investment of effort and then stack it up. The key, reciprocity, because nobody likes a taker. So that's one thing. The second thing is that if you want somebody to notice your invitation, don't do what everybody else does. Everybody says the same thing. Can I take you out for coffee? 
How is that going to work for somebody who could buy a coffee franchise? You think that they lack coffee if they have somebody who delivers coffee to their desk when they get to the office? Let's get real here. Offer to take them somewhere way different. Hey, I, uh, I love what you're up to. And I, you know what? I don't know if this is too crazy, but I'm a skydiver. I'm a street artist. I'm a this, whatever it is. Uh, I thought this might be fun for you or your team as an activity. I'd love to, to get to talk to you, meet you and your team, and maybe run an activity for them if you'd be willing to give me a few minutes of your time. Suddenly, something that you'd be happy to do regardless becomes a real point of interest. So now the, the person who is looking for a team bonding experience for their team, if I go, Julie, hey, I'm a street artist. You know what? Why don't you and your entire team come and join me? All I ask is that you cover your own expenses on paint because frankly, I'm you know like an up and coming student or something like that, but I'll teach them how to do street art, right? Would you then say, oh, I'd be happy to kind of spend a few hours with this person doing street art, bonding with my team and, and whatever it is, right? Suddenly they're providing value and you're willing to open up to them. So the key is do something that stands out. Find something that nobody else is saying to them. And the last tip I'm gonna end with is something called information gap theory. And it works like this. When there's a gap between what I'm presenting to you and what you know, there's usually one of three scenarios. If the gap is too big, let's say I start talking about theoretical astrophysics, you might say, John, I think I'm gonna pass. I, <laughs> right? You, you literally are like, I feel uncomfortable in this conversation because I don't know how to engage. So you are going to excuse yourself from the conversation. If the gap between what I'm presenting to you and what you already know is very small, it's uninteresting. There's no continued conversation. You ask for the time, I give it to you, it's over, right? But if the gap is big enough that it's unfamiliar, but not so big that it's scary, then curiosity kicks in and it feels like an itch you cannot scratch. Can you give me, give me an example of that? I think you see it anytime you've ever looked like at a article title, 27 uses for a banana and number five will blow your mind. Now will number five ever blow your mind? No, it's number five is like something stupid. I don't clean your floors, but th that gap in your knowledge suddenly creates curiosity, right? We start talking about a conspiracy theory maybe or whatever it is, it might create curiosity for people. We might, uh, if I say, oh, wow, did you hear about that, that drug, that uh, the medication that uh, people with diabetes take and be, those that are prescribed it actually live longer than people without diabetes? Suddenly you're like, hold on a second. Should I be taking this? I know I don't have diabetes, but if this is causing people to live a long time, maybe I should know about it. And in a way, that's contribution, right? I'm just thinking that through. You are, you are I, it, making a contribution. It, you, it could be. It could just be a way to get people's attention, frankly. Uh, it's, it's an effective Yes, it's an effective way. So if I'll use information gaps to get people's attention all the time. So the invitations to my stuff say there'll be 12 very successful people there, but we don't tell them 
who? We tell them we're going to be cooking a dinner together, but we don't tell them what. You know, we tell them the location will be shared a week before, but that's mostly for our benefit so that in case we change locations, we don't drive people crazy. So we give them a t all the information that they need, but we remain with a bunch of gaps so that they're curious, so that we stay top of mind and they're more likely to show up. What's your favorite, what's your favorite story oh, out man. of all the dinners? Uh, the Little Prince, but that has nothing to do with my dinners. I just love the story of the Little Prince. <laughs> I mean, we can go into that if you yeah. want to. Um, but out of out of all the dinners you've done, what's your favorite connection uh, the story? Ones there, oh, connection story? Uh, we were going around guessing what one woman does, and uh, and we were just about to get to find out, and one woman goes, I think you're a lifesaver. That was a bit of an awkward statement. And then she said, because when I was, and this is her story, not mine, when she was 16, she, was, she had cancer. She was on the operating table. And she said, I knew I was dying. I saw myself going towards the light. And then your music came on. I guess whoever was doing the surgery was listening to music and brought me back. And you saved my life. And the woman we were guessing about was a very famous musician. And the person that had just shared the story was the head of membership for Soho House. And so it's, uh, which is this like swanky membership club and across the world. And so I love that story because it, there's no way I could have planned that. Just no way. But in that moment, that woman got to share a story that she's probably been holding on to for 20 to 30 years. And that was like a highlight of her life. Oh, gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. And what a moment for both of them. Right. To have found each other across a table sharing food. Mm -hmm. mm. Okay, my last question for you. If, um, if I gave you one invitation, mm -hmm. One invitation that was guaranteed to be accepted. Um, what would the invitation be? Who or what would you like to invite? Oh, to what? To my uh, like to my dinner or just to any to do it anything? Could be your dinner, it could be to your house. It do, could be. Do, would they um, need to be alive right now? Let's say no. Okay, I would really. I feel like I've missed out on never getting to host Stanley, the creator of many of the most iconic superheroes and I don't even know the mythology of our time. And uh, I never got to host him and I had direct contacts to him. And it was one of those things that I kind of put off and put off. Uh, I was one of two people. It was him and a guy named Peter Cullen. And I managed to host Peter. Peter is the voice of Optimus Prime from the Transformers. And so growing up, that's the voice I would hear every day when I'd come home from school and oh, turn on the television. Goodness. And I got inducted into the Autobots and uh, was told to transform and roll out, which was kind of cool. And uh, that was a, a huge thing for me. Stanley, what would, you, what would you ask him if you could? Oh, wow. Uh, that's, you know, it's, it's interesting. That's never been something that I've been much concerned with. For me, it would be more about like, let's just hang out and do something like, play a game or something. 
I, I, I don't have, I, like, it doesn't occur to me to drill into somebody's wisdom like that. I'd probably have a podcast if I was better at those things. I just would want him to feel like he participated and he felt like he belonged and he'd want to come back. That would be the, the biggest joy for me is that he'd want to participate. Well, John, thank you. Thank you for participating. <laughs> it's and thank been you for an absolute yes pleasure. To the invitation. Um, you know, we've, we've spoken before and I knew from the, from the first time that we spoke that this would be um, insightful and, you know, extremely, extremely valuable. And it has been all those things and more. So thank you. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, and thanks for having me on. This has been fantastic. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea, or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea, or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.